Hello, darlings, and welcome back to Hashtag Lone Squad, the podcast dedicated to discussing the wonderful wacky world of Rumiko Takashi's Yurasi Astra. I'm your host, Lam Ramayasha, giving an introduction to the first half of our discussion on the manga's 10th omnibus volume. Why are we only covering the first half of the volume on this episode instead of the entire volume like we've done in previous episodes? Well, we had so much to say about this volume that we ended up recording our discussion of it in two different recording sessions staggered nearly a mark apart from each other. And the second session itself was split further into two different recordings. Besides the length of time between the recordings of the first and second episodes of this volume discussion, we also changed up how we recap the chapters between the two sessions, switching from me and AC alternating between who recaps the contents of the chapters to me doing all the synopses of the chapters in the second half. Because there are so many clear tells and distinctions that these were different recordings, and because the combined length of the audio for both parts would be over three hours long when put together, I thought it would make more sense to treat and release these as two different episodes. I think we'll cover future volumes in the manga split between two episodes in the future as well, because doing it that way fits into our recording schedules a little bit better, and it may help us more reliably release these podcasts regularly and routinely. And I think covering the series based on a single Tonkabon's work to chapters rather than the combined two volumes that are in the omnibuses makes a lot of sense too. And it gives us more time to focus on the individual chapters rather than needing to really go through them at a quick clip in order to get ourselves through the entire volume before we need to head out on every recording session. And with that context out of the way, though, I'm really excited to invite you guys into our discussion of the first half of the series' 10-omnibus volume, effectively the 19th volume of the original manga Tanko Bonds, featuring a chain of stories about memories and a story relatively about a chain of memories. Enjoy! Darlings, welcome back to Hashtag Lone Squad, the one and only podcast dedicated to the wonderful wacky world of Fukunagahaji's Yurusei Yatsura. I'm one of your hosts, Lom Ramiyasha. And I'm Andrew A.C. Yoshimura. And today we are continuing our coverage of Viz Media's releases of the Yurusei Yatsura manga. We've got into the double digits with Volume 10, containing the original... Tanko Bob Williams 19 and 20. We're closing off the themes of the original Tanko Bonds and we're getting into the 20s. We're getting definitely into the midpoint of Yurusei Yatsura after crossing that threshold last episode on Volume 9. So it's exciting times. We got a lot of cool stories to talk about in these volumes. Like, there are some cool character introductions for some recurring characters going forward, and there's some really good stories in here. There really are. There was uh, quite a, a a lot of comedy in these issues, I reckon, because it just in these chapters, because comedy, there's always a mixture of one thing and another, but these ones actually had me laughing out loud, which was a lot more consistent than some of the other ones we've been reading recently. Yeah, these were a really funny stretch of chapters, but there were also some really heartfelt stories in this batch too, which I really loved, and we'll get to them, but it's a really good yeah. mix of... Here's the Astra's different strengths, I think, in this batch. 
So for chapter one, we've got underwater love triangle. So the school, uh, who never really appear in the classroom much at the moment, <laughs> and they pointed out later on, um, actually are visiting the aquarium today, and uh, they see an old friend of theirs, the pool monster, just hanging out as he does, and he yeah. invites them into the our general four into the tank, and they just kind of pop in, and of course Lum goes in first. <laughs> It's a real SpongeBob underwater shenanigans of like the pool demon has a rice cooker and is pouring tea underwater and he's eating snacks underwater and somehow they're just have all floating flying all over the place. It's real SpongeBob logic. You can do normal things underwater. And of course they explain away why Lum can kinda of talk, understand pool demon and breathe easy in the underwater in the aquarium is because she has like an oxygen pill which she later feeds the rest of the group so they don't have to worry about drowning. Yeah. Which is, it's great because uh, they just, Ataru follows Lum in because they're snacks, and Mendo follows Lum in because she's Lum. Yeah. And then, God knows why, Shinobu ended, ended up in there. Um, but the, the boy, mm, she just she just kind of is yeah. in there. And, you know, there is a kind of a half point to that later on. Mm. So it turns out that uh, the family who adopted the pool monster had gone to the aquarium, and the pool monster had fallen in love with a blowfish. So he decided to abandon his new family and uh, try and uh, smooch up to said blowfish, except that she's uh, basically already got a hunk who is a giant shark with sunglasses. Well, a rival for, for love. We don't know if Mimiko the blowfish actually likes this shark. We don't really know if she likes the pool demon. She just has like kind of this blank expression on her face. This wide-eyed She's just a expression. fish. Yeah, I think she's just a fish. She is just effectively a prop for yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. So they they say they're going to help the pool demon uh, against the, the love rival shark. And inexplicably, Shinobu and Lum turn into mermaids. There is no explanation for this. There's no, uh, like, weird Lum science magic or anything like that. It's just, like, one page to the next. Yeah, I guess you just assume that they're wearing costumes. You kind of do, except it really doesn't look like it. Like, it just looks like they are just mermaids. Yeah, the scales blend in with their flesh pretty well, so yeah. You have to wonder. You do. It's not really important to the story because basically they try and distract the shark and the boy comes running back and says, it's okay, you can have the, we can keep the blowfish as well. So the pool monster hops out with the blowfish after they've kind of distracted the shark enough and it just ends with everyone fighting the shark in the fish tank with Onsen Mark getting really, really angry. Yeah, as per usual. was feeling all sorry for himself. Like, oh my gosh, I'm causing so much trouble for everyone. But the minute he hears that he can just live with Mimiko outside the tank, he just abandons all the people he cajoled and guilt-tripped into helping him without a second thought. It's very much in line for this character, which I'm surprised to pull even returned after such a long absence. We last saw him in the end of... Volume 9, which was the, in the 5th Omnibus. So it's been like 10 Tanglebot volumes, 5 of these Omnibus volumes as we've seen this pool demon again. And yeah, it was fun to see this recurring character again. I 
There were so many good gags, uh, again, about the underwater stuff the pool demon does. And them just, like, sitting around the table and trying to eat snacks underwater. And then, of course, the great gags are, like, them trying to speak underwater, but, you know, their words are all jumbled underwater because, obviously, they can't communicate normally. Hmm. And I love how this punk is shark that's wearing, like, shades. You know, it's a shark. You'd think it would attack them by, like, chomping on them, but it it instigates a brawl with Ataru and Mendo by slapping them. <laughs> yeah, basically using his flippers. Yeah. Just <laughs> looking at this, it just makes me think that Takahashi just really wanted to draw a shark. Mm. Like, she, she seems to always have a lot of fun drawing animals, especially when they're kind of slightly off-model kind of punk parodies of said animals and this shark really is um a good example of that because you've got the outline of a shark and you've got everything a shark does but the way that takahashi has done the shades and the flippers and the way it smiles when it kind of has this toothy grin um really gives it a lot of character and of course the shark has no no dialogue it all comes through just through the drawings yeah it's got a lot of personality i really love this design I also love how Junior's parents, the boy who adopted the pool monster, I love how his parents, when we see them, like their faces have just this scribbly expression and their eyes are just Papa and Mama. It's just funny. (laughs) Basically saying they're kind of irrelevant to the story. Mm -hmm. Once again, just props. And they hopefully will get that uh, blowfish to a tank of water pretty quickly after this. This Aquarian chapter does establish, though, that we're getting into a string of chapters that are exploring a summer theme. We're definitely in summertime in the series, and basically the first couple chapters in this book really all revolve around that premise, and that is true of chapter 2, 10 Floats in Space, because it's a very hot day, and Ten is just flying around wearing basically a sun hat. And Sakura invites him to go eat at her place later. And Ten's excited about this, but then a crow, wearing shades, steals his sunflower out, calling out, Aho, Aho, call him an idiot. And so, (laughs) he tries to chase after the crow and get his hat back. And Lum encounters him as he's trying to do this and warns them, don't stay on the sun too long because you'll get sunstroke. And if you get sunstroke, your body will get too full of hot air and it can't last. So we're learning a new thing about alien biology here. It's like if they get sunstroke, yeah. they like become so bloated full of air they won't be able to land. Sure enough, this happens. It does give you kind of a, a little bit of an insight into how like the Oni biology kind of works mm-hmm. and how they fly, which is kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, I guess it really has to do with the heat of their bodies. Like, that fills mm. them with some sort of air makes them, like, buoyant enough to basically float in air. So it's a really interesting detail. You could definitely dissect and analyze, oh, there's, there's maybe more to the science of how they can fly than meets the mm. eye. Regardless, Ted is just flailing and lying around, and fortunately, bum warning comes true, and he gets sunstroke, and he becomes unable to land and, like, fly himself to the ground, and he realizes that if one finds out, then he's going to basically get grounded, and she'll keep him better, and all day. He doesn't want to do that, because he wants to go to Sakura's, so he tries to avoid Lum while on his way to Sakura's, 
And it turns out Sakura has not just invited him, but has invited Nuramataru, the whole gang, to help her finish off a big helping of eel that she got as a gift to someone. And it's a lot of eel, and you can definitely see, like, Sakura's treating everyone to some free eel here, but she is eating the bulk of it. She's eating a hundred times more, and she's serving everyone else. And Cherry, <laughs> Cherry has a bigger serving helping than everyone else, but it's also a pithy amount compared to how much Sakura is eating. But anyway, Ten arrives there, and he's trying to figure out, like, how can I ground myself so, like, they don't suspect the thing. And he fills his trunks with rocks, but then he realizes, oh, this this looks kind of bad. <laughs> not, not a good look. <laughs> you know, they don't say this explicitly in the book, but it does look like he shit his pants. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so Ten's solution is just to carry, like, a pot of tea and pour people some tea, and that's, like, going to be his cover. But then he gets to the point where he can't really use the teapot as a cover because as he, you know, pours out more liquid, it becomes lighter. So instead he gets watermelons to drag himself down so he can like kind of float to a level where he can eat eel. But then Sakura cuts the watermelon and he goes flying off to the ceiling and Lum figures out his secret. And that prompts Ataru to suggest certain methods of curing sunstroke which basically, you know, are effective methods in one sense, but in practice, Adar is just torturing them because he's basically, you know, dumping cold water over his head, basically waterboarding him. He's wrapping him in yeah. cold wet sheet, basically suffocating him. And he's force-feeding him liquids because if you're thirsty, you should drink a lot, and he's force-feeding him liquids. And then he, like, like, chains them to a log and leaves them in ice water. And so, unfortunately, this does backfire on Ataru, like, his attempt to kind of torture Ten here, because while it does cure Ten of his sunstroke, it gives him a cold, and Ten makes advantage of this cold to, basically, whatever he sees is burn Ataru with his fire breath. <laughs> so, Ataru does get comeuppance for his torture of Ten here. He does, and this is, like... We we see them fighting a lot, but torture is actually the correct description here because, like, this is waterboarding. Um, <laughs> look, <laughs> and look, this has a lot worse connotations now than when this was written. But then again, this was also something that the Japanese people did to prisoners of war back in 1945. So yeah. it's a it's a bit of a, a an on then off then on sort of thing. But yeah, this is actual torture that Ataru is performing here, but the funniest thing to me is that Sakura is just watching on and saying, yes, those are the correct treatments. <laughs> <laughs> Which, just the look on her face when she says that is pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the, the thing that I didn't notice the first time I read this was there are a whole bunch of scorch marks all over... Yeah, all over the mask Ataru's the room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is always fun to see this like little sometimes you just catch little details and let's face it sometimes I'm just not wearing my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on to chapter three, which is Mother on the Rocks. First of a two-parter. It is a two-parter indeed, and uh, we're continuing our summer vacation. And of course, we a um, start with a close-up on Cherry's face, <laughs> which Ataru acts as the audience there by smacking him upside the head, saying, cut that out. So they're all at the beach. Cherry seems to be on assignment. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and has been hired by the local townspeople to do something, but is completely useless. And I think my theory is that Takahashi just likes to draw Cherry sometimes. Yeah, I think Cherry's appearance in and of itself is a funny joke. Like, I, the it first is. page is great. Just Cherry in all these dramatic angles in these different battles. And you have bam, 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 bam. The whining sound effect is so good, too. Like, it is funny <laughs> to see his goofy face being treated so seriously and then undercut that. I think Takahashi enjoys drawing Cherry because he's not a particularly complicated character to draw either. <laughs> she can kind of, like, get a couple of panels with him out of the way pretty quickly. And then, bam, we got another We got another character here, Mr. Fujinami, is uh, around loving the ocean as he does. Another character who Takashi loves to draw dramatic close of his face, yes. which happens more than once <laughs> in these chapters. Yes. Um, and, of course, they're selling ice creams with uh, Ryunosuke. And Ataru and uh, Mendo are going for a swim underwater to perv on women, as they do. I kind of do like it when Ataru and Mendo kind of share this sort of... They kind of work together to be perverts yeah. sometimes. To kind of, like, go underwater. Like, Mendo, of course, has professional scuba gear and um, Ataru just has... He's sucking air from an inflatable just a, a tube. tube. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is amusing that they have camaraderie in their skeeziness, basically. Uh, we did miss an important detail, though, in this chapter, and one that I find very compelling, is that as Ryu is selling these ice creams on the beach, she is noticing all these mothers and children, and that's making her a little pensive and reflective and kind of sad, like seeing these happy families with these mothers doting on their kids. It's making her long for what she wish she had, which is an important note mm. as we tour these chapters. It is, yeah. While uh, Mendo and Ataru are underwater, they actually see a beautiful woman in a kimono, so they follow her to shore. Like, she's just walking on the seabed, and she seems to recognize Ryonosuke, and she says, my child. And then as soon as she says that, of course, Mr. Fujinami <laughs> comes up and just says, Masako! Dramatic because... facial close-up here again. You gotta yep. love me, screen. And of course, he he says, uh, you know, Ryonosuke says, don't joke about that. But he pulls out a whole bunch of photographs, all of completely different women, as per usual. Yeah, his only and they're all wearing kimonos. For this woman being Masako, is that she, like these other women, looks good in a kimono. And so, yeah, <laughs> obviously Ryonosuke is frustrated with that. And again, following up on this idea that Mr. Fujinami has completely forgotten what Masako actually. I kind of like that. At first, you're not sure if he's serious, but he's deadly serious. He has yeah. no idea whatsoever. Yeah, I think he's telling you when here that he might he might actually believe that this woman was Moscow. <laughs> Which really adds to the comedy. Um, and of course, Ryonosuke doesn't believe a word of it. Um, she stalks off and the woman in the kimono is just wavering behind her uh, with everyone shouting behind them. And now we're on to chapter four, Mother on the Rocks, part two. Yes, and one detail I want to point out, then we'll get to why the significance of this is uh, later in the chapter, but throughout the first part of this story, you'll notice that there is this kind of boulder rock on the beach that Cherry is standing on at first, and Ataru steps on, 
And it does see throughout the chapter that you see it in a different location at the end here, where we see Ryunosuke mm. sitting on it when the woman who is presumed to be Masako is calling after her. And then now on the title page for chapter four of the Swallow Motor in the Rocks Part Two, we are sitting the woman old Ryunosuke while sitting on this rock. This rock is very significant, of course, so we'll discuss why later in this chapter. But I also just want to talk about this title, but I didn't like it is, you know, it, it captures a lot of pensive, uh, affecting emotion, I think, in the way this woman is holding Ryunosuke and Ryunosuke's expression of kind of like logging, but unsureness is very affecting, especially with the mm-hmm. depiction of the beach and the sunset in the background. But yes, basically, as we get into this chapter, the woman has an appetite as healthy as cherries because they're basically eaten at this restaurant and devoured bowls and bowls of food. Rinosuke is kind of peeking in on them eating, like unsure of whether this woman really is her mother. And basically, the town locals that hire Cherry come to the restaurant angry at Cherry just eating away while not really solving the problem of searching this spook that has been kind of stealing food around the town. Then Masako kind of suddenly decides to get up and, you know, look for her child, and Mr. Ujinami wants to spend time with her, you know, reunite his couple. And then she kind of punches him out the window, and (laughs) that is what convinces Ryunosuke, oh, she's as strong as me, she must be my mother. I love how Mr. Ujinami just kind of bounces back in there, like, immediately after (laughs) Masako this presuming Moscow is much It's like very funny. He knows how to take a punch and can be bound from that very quickly. But yeah, basically, this presumed Moscow, this woman, she's kind of crying, looking for a kid at the beach. And when they go to console her, Love discovers that she has a tail, and this starts a conversation of, huh, is this woman really Rinosuke's mother? And so they decide to do some investigating. Meanwhile, Cherry is getting beaten up by the town locals for sleeping on the job. And he was sitting on that rock we saw earlier. But, yeah, Taru and friends look for Rinosuke. And they basically try to feel around her butt for a tail. Like, not just Ataru <laughs> tries this more than once, but even Mum tries it. And yeah. Ataru and Mum decide to keep Mum about the woman may or may not be Rinosuke's mother because they don't want to hurt her feelings, but Mr. Fujinami kind of goes, you know, into confronting her, because he's convinced that she is actually Masako. And so we see that this woman has encountered Cherry, and the boulder that he was seeing on seems to have been dried up, and so she also hears in the distance the townspeople calling for the spook, and so then she goes a-running. And Mr. Ujinami and Ryunosuke encounter her, and he, Mr. Fujinami throws Ryunosuke right at her, and so she crashes into her, and so as a result of the crash, it turns out that this spirit, this spook, this woman was a spook, a spirit, and her human transformation was undone, and so at first, Mr. Ujinami and Ryunosuke, like, think that, oh, was my mother slash was my wife a spook? And no, like, Atari was like, does it occur to you that maybe she's not your mother? But then it turns out, as we see the townspeople, like, chasing after the building, which is carrying a bunch of food, 
And then we see the spook run after the boulder. And it turns out that the boulder was actually kind of a turtle spook spirit in itself. And it was once feeling the food and the spirit woman was like just searching for a child. And so they have reunited. And so like Mr. Ujinami tries to deflect like his mistake by saying, Oh, you know, why would I be married to spook? You know, your mother was a beautiful woman who looked great in Western clothing, despite in the previous <laughs> chapter saying that she was a beautiful woman who looked great in a kimono. And so basically Mr. Ujinami is getting kind of fight each other a bit. And then, like, the town locals kind of clap the mother and son reuniting and drifting off. And then the end of the chapter is just very awakening. And he has a big bone with him and just decides to go home. And the final joke is that we see that there has been a can uh, left abandoned the beach, which is kind of a very subtle joke because early in the chapter there was a sign that's saying, like, no littering, like, please empty trash. Empty can please hmm. throw empty cans in the trash. So that's kind of a nice, subtle, fun joke for this one now, but yeah. This was um I do like it when Rionosuke is kind of almost as dumb as her dad is when it comes mm. to her mother. She's kind of prepared. Usually she's cynical, but when it comes to her mother, she's almost kind of prepared to believe anything if there's just a faint glimmer of hope there. Yeah. And she believes it a lot longer than what she probably should. Yeah, it's, uh, it's and- sad how des- it is kind of tragic and sad, like yeah. how you know desperate she is for her mother to know who her mother was, to have a connection with her mother, and that time and again, mm. like her hopes keep getting dashed because she keeps getting misled and lied to by Mr. Fujinami, her dad. It just it makes me feel very sad for her. But this, these were some very funny chapters and. They were. They were pretty good. I'm guessing that there is some sort of Japanese, uh, maybe cultural folklore about who these two spirits are. Probably. As well as some more context for that can joke, that joke of like the can being littered on the beach. Yeah. And it's, I'm going to be honest, I don't, I've never heard such a story before. Um, You know, I certainly don't know everything about Japanese folklore and customs, so... Um, this one actually eludes me, but I'm I'm sure that there is some extra context we're missing here. But the overall story is pretty funny, and it's interesting to point out that Cherry is completely superfluous to this story. Yeah. He's completely unneeded. He is unwanted. He is just there to get the shit kicked out of him by the the local villagers. He basically gets up after after you know in the morning after being you know kicked unconscious, and then just goes, "I'm going home." That's yeah. it. He was just here for the gag, but there was some great gag to him, so you can't complain. Yeah. Very good use. But yeah, speaking of cans, uh, the next chapter more f- explicitly focuses on the can that's behind the beach. It does indeed. Little Canned Youth, Chapter 5. Um, this one is interesting because the um, the cover here of Lum in a swimsuit on a um, kind of a crumpled up can is... Uh, one that has appeared in a lot of on a lot of merchandise and uh, a lot of swimming bags and stuff like that back in the day. Actually, it's a good illustration. I, I, I do love her really swimsuit yeah. that is peppered with like these candy illustrations. Like it's very cute. Mm. So basically, we cut to an announcement asking for Ataru Moroboshi's group, and they keep announcing nobody's come up, and it is um, Tsubame and um, Sakura. 
who are finally trying to get some time to themselves. They embrace, almost kiss, and of course, the team turn up. Yeah. I mean, they they put out an announcement for a time when she, Marvel she threw, but they waited presumably a long time to see if they'd show up before deciding mm. to be romantic. Like, they should have not called attention to themselves. It's a real, like, lose it away situation, because if they didn't do this, maybe they would have also still been spied on accidentally as this one happened. But, yeah. They tried to call attention to themselves in an effort to be like, okay, like, if they show up, then if they're here and they'll show up, then we know for sure, but if they don't, then we're in the clear that it, it, it backfires either. I right? think they're, they're just cursed every time yeah. that they, they're together. The four or five of them are going to turn up. It is fun this chapter call attention to that trope, though, of, like, Ataru yeah. through consistently discovering and peeping on Sakura Tsubami at the beach. And uh, this this volume actually calls out quite a few tropes that yeah, are used, not yeah. just in Ursa Yatara, but in manga in general, which is, which is kind of, I like the breaking of the fourth wall. Mm. Anyway, Sakura says she's going to treat uh, Ataru to a juice. And basically throws it away, and Ataru chases it like a dog. <laughs> uh, so he's searching for the can, which he actually c- crumpled up and basically opened and is mostly empty, but Ataru being Ataru wants to kind of cherish anything that uh, Sakura has touched. Mm. And Ten, um, which is a, uh, something that comes up a, a few times, yeah, is um, trying to get out of, yeah, is trying to get out of swimming lessons. Swimming lessons from Long, yeah, foreshadowing yeah. for a later chapter in this book. And so he's always constantly trying to escape Lum, and of course, you know, Ten is just as much of a pervert is as um, Mendo and Ataru, so he's like just uh, kind of babe-watching along the beach, and he uh, comes into what looks to be like a little bit of plasticky, cellophane sort of thing. Yeah. He's not sure what it is, we aren't either. Ataru finally finds what he thinks is the can, except it's kind of loose and rubbery. Mm. It kind of seems to be almost alive, seems to start moving on its own. Yeah. Sakura and Tsubame are almost going to kiss again, and they all turn up staring at them. (laughs) (laughs) They're really intent on watching these guys kiss. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why. I just love the fact that every single time they almost kiss, they're just watching them. They're not even interfering. Like, they're not saying, don't do it, or this is bad. They're, even Ataru no, they is just be watching keenly. They want to see their, like, yeah. sexy, steamy romance. Exactly. So, anyway, they start to investigate the can, and um, using their spiritual powers, they notice that it's inhabited by a spirit that is effectively looking for its body. Yeah, there's a great moment where Ataru tries to drink the liquid in the can, but then Lum, like, slaps it out of him, and we see the liquid, like, slurp back into the can. It's like, yeah, <laughs> the liquid is alive. <laughs> to think that Ataru yeah. almost drank the sentient liquid. Which is another, another uh, like, running joke that Ataru will eat or drink anything he finds on the ground. Absolutely. So Ten turns up with this kind of crinkly, kind of cellophane type thing, which turns out to be the um, the body of the jellyfish. The spirit's body, which it turns out to be a jellyfish. That's right. He has lost his love, and so they go and say, okay, you guys go search for it. We're going to go help. And of course, they try and get back to kissing pretty much almost immediately. 
but they're not tricked by this. <laughs> and they're still watching. They really are voyeurs here. And it's like, Lum especially, the art on her face when she's just like looking super intently. Yeah. Is just really, really funny. She's aged about 60 years or something and she's just got this look on her face. They all have furrowed brows. Like, they are very seriously intently watching them. <laughs> anyway, they, um, they kind of get angry at the can. Oh my god, this illustration too of them, like, <laughs> passionately angry. Like, how dramatic it is. Just, just, just with the can. Uh, Ten turns up with the body, uh, and the jellyfish gets it back. Unfortunately, it's still inside the can, so the jellyfish yeah. is trapped inside they the didn't can, think which is a great cross section, yeah, yeah, of the jellyfish just trapped inside a can as the last panel. I thought that was really clever. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and poor uh, Sakura and Tsubame are just just. Yeah, completely downtrodden. Like they really should probably <laughs> think about other locations to have dates where they are unlikely to encounter these high schoolers. I reckon it's a curse. Like there, there was a fan theory that those two are cursed because of something they did with Ataru in the first chapter. Tsubame was um, uh, was introduced at the disco. Oh. And no matter what happens, no matter what they do, no matter when they're together and try and be intimate, Ataru will always just kind of pop up. Interesting I don't think theory. that's actually the... I don't think that was Takahashi's kind of No, that uh, sounds explicit, like a fan you know, This is all theory. just a joke. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, I definitely like the, the, the way that people have kind of overthought this. Yeah, no, that's because, a lot of fun. You know, it, it does seem like it is kind of more or less a curse to, to like supernaturally inclined people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and next we've got uh, chapter six, Oh, Night Shops. Yeah, we're kind of winding down the summer chapters here, transitioning back to fall, because we're having a summer evening festival chapter hosted by the Tonbiki Shopping Association. And basically, all the high schoolers have been summoned to Tonbiki High to basically partake in a special activity that the school is putting on. A special summer evening festival test of courage. They basically have set up a big haunted house for all the students to go in. And the winner, the person who comes out of the haunted house first, will be able to basically dine for free at the festival. So, like, if they get out of this maze, if they get out of the haunted house first, they basically have a night of, like, free eating, drinking, and and that motivates everyone, especially, like, Ryanosuke. And Mendo is also alert of the promise of going to the festival because he's never been, as, you know, a rich folk whose mother forbade him from going to the festivals when he was a young lad. He is wowed by Ryanosuke regaling that oh, they sell all sorts of cool things there, and there are lots of beautiful women and kimonos there. And so Mendo's motivated because he wants to see something he's never got to experience before, and he knows he's motivated because she's always had to work at the festivals and never gotten to enjoy it herself. And of course, like, the entire haunted house thing is basically a trick from the teachers to basically capture and punish the students for the night, and they want to keep them from going to the festival. Like, this is a trap in order for them to not go to the festival so they don't eat the festival out of everything it's worked. And so there are a bunch of traps in there, like uh, an iron 
bell that like falls on Mendo, which he's able to crack open thanks to his experience doing that in the last volume. They're like falling actions, like they're really deadly traps here. He's be mistaken for believing uh, that the teachers are trying to kill these students because uh, they're literally <laughs> lunging at them with axes here. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of spears that just kind of pop right out of the wall. Yeah, and like these are deadly, actual like and and Onsen Mike is just saying, I want to torture Ataru for what he puts me through every day. Yeah, literally, they want to basically punish the students here. I mean, thankfully, they have some pretty strong folks on their side, because Shinobu and Lum can easily fend off the teachers. They mistakenly kidnap Ryunosuke, thinking that she looks like Tara from behind, and she beats them up because of that. She's insulted that they mistook her for Tara. And they try to trap them in a pit, but they did not electric-proof the cage of the pit, so... Lum is able to electrocute them. Mendo does not fall in the pit, so he basically is willing to abandon them just so that he can get out and of the haunted house first and then enjoy the benefits of exploring the the festival. But everyone else does get out. But of course the exit has been blocked off, and so they're trying to get out of there. Lum blasts the holes through the wall, and so that allows everyone to escape. But the festival, the uh, shopkeepers, they have their own trick up their sleeve, their own contingency plan, and they, at the last minute, switch out the summer festival as a metalware market, and so they're no longer <laughs> selling any food, just pots and pans to the chagrin of the students. Atari's still trying to fight off Onsamark, who, by the way, is in the same kitty costume that he was in the Lunchtime Eaters chapter when they were trying to stop all the students from eating out, so that's a fun detail. And then Lum, yeah. Lum is trying to eat a pan thinking that it's food, and she's complaining that they were baked. <laughs> I, do, I do love this last uh, shot of Lum here. When she's trying to eat something, her fangs come out. Yeah. You can tell that she's really trying to chew on this thing. Um, just the alienness of that, the fact that she doesn't realize it's not not food is always is always great because she has such low standards and opinions mm. about earth food that of course she's going to think that this metal pan is food. Yeah. <laughs> this was a great chapter. I do love it when they're all wearing their kimono and they're all rather, I should say, yukata. Yeah. So yukata is like a... It's a, a light cotton kimono-like apparel that you wear to festivals and the like. They're actually super comfortable and very lightweight and um, quite breezy, which is really good in like humid summers. And it would have... There are a lot of detail in kimono, which <laughs> I can see why they went through a haunted house so they didn't necessarily have to draw the detail every panel. <laughs> because if you look at the start of the um, the start... Lum's yukata is has all of these beautiful butterflies on it. Yeah, it's very detailed. Mm. And then, of course, they go into a dark setting where you can't see it as much. Well, it's interesting because it, the dark setting doesn't obscure the the clothing patterns a whole bunch. Like they're still pretty not, drawn. Not much. I think more but just enough. Like a, Takashi just avoids drawing Lum at an angle where she has to show a lot of her pattern, mm. but. Or she's electrocuted. She's using her powers, which over brightens yeah. everything. I, I do, I do love it when they're all wearing um, 
the yukata. It, I don't know. It, it's, it feels very summery to me. And the thing about this chapter is that they never account for Lum. Like, no matter what happens, they know that Lum is always going to be with Hataru, and they're always trying to get Hataru, but they never account for this, like, flying alien who's basically a living lightning storm. Yeah, you really think that they would have enough experience by now to know what a wrench Lum can throw into things, so they really need to account for her to get her out of the way before they try to entrap these other students. Another detail I really liked is the principal who designed the haunted house. Like, he kind of pops out of a well at one point where they're, like, complaining about how gaudy and tacky it is. And, you know, mm. he's a little mad, but mostly he's just upset and pouting. Like, he goes back into the well and, like, gets sobbing inside there. And that's the last we see of him for the chapter. Like, he's just so distraught and disappointed that the students don't like the haunted house. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I do like the fact that um, they all change everything into the metalware market after that, and mm. and Mendo has no idea. He just thinks it's great. These yeah. are metal markets. Wow. No, Mendo is generally impressed. He's like tearing up that he's he's finally <laughs> getting to see the night shops. <laughs> okay, next we've got my absolute favorite chapter of this volume. Really, chapter seven. I am a F I S H. There's just something that really tickled me about this chapter. There's a great gags here. This is the one that made me laugh out loud the most. <laughs> I, I tweeted a bit of this out as well. Uh, and there's also a bit of a, a personal connection because I'm trying to teach my four-year-old how to swim at the moment, which is probably going as well as you think it is. Oh, no. <laughs> so it starts with uh, Ten running away from Lump. Lum is just angrily flying through the air looking for him. Ten runs into Ataru and, like, says, Hey, what's going on? You in trouble with Lum? And he goes, No, no, she's trying to teach me how to swim. And Lum's uh, method of teaching involves tying Ten to dumbbells and throwing him in the water and putting piranhas in the water to make him swim faster. (laughs) Ataru notes that this is potentially deadly and then, of course, captures Ten right away and hands him over to Lum. Uh, They end up, both, all three of them end up at the swimming pool where Lum has a device in the shape of a fish. I don't know what kind of fish that is. I'm not really a fish person. That attaches to someone's stomach and will provide force in the opposite direction of them trying to swim. Yeah, basically providing resistance. Yeah. So Lum tries to get this onto Ten's chest, says, hey, look, babes, both of them look, both Ataru (laughs) and, and Ten look, I just love it when, when Lum says babes as well. Yeah. However, Ten catches on slightly before Ataru does, flips up, and it's attached to Ataru instead, mm. um, which flings him straight into the water where it's revealed that you have to swim 200 meters for this thing to come off. So the rest of this chapter is basically Ataru trying to swim, or at least trying to find motivation to swim 200 meters to get this thing off. So, of course, he tries to play tag with the girls, which seems to work for a little bit, and then they just get out and uh, and sunbathe for a while. Mum is very happy about this, because since he yeah. can't get out of the pool, he can't chase after them. No time to hit all the ladies today. Such a great expression that she says that. Yeah, I was about to point that out. No time to hit on the ladies today, and she's got a little, like, a little <laughs> whistle coming out of her mouth, and she's got this kind of... Like, almost like a calm, half calm, half seductive look. Yeah. And Ataru does this great thing where he faces Lum and then 
puts in no resistance whatsoever and goes backwards. Yeah, it's such a great gag because like he's trying to get away from them, but obviously the fish, because the resistance is pushing him towards her. So he realizes, oh, if he actually tries to swim towards them, the fish will push him away from her. So great. Um, he tries to use Ten to to get it off as well. Uh, Ten is, of course, not very receptive. He tries to get Katatsuneko to get it off because he's a cat and he likes fish. There's so many great Katatsuneko guys in this chapter. Like, we yeah. missed it earlier, but like we see a page where Katatsuneko is like at the pool, and he's like doing these stretches to warm up for getting the pool, but then he like just goes and sunbathes <laughs> instead. It's and then now, like, we're seeing Kadatsu Neko, and he has, like, these huge eyes, and then Ataru thinks that he's looking at the fish, because cats eat fish, and he has, like, these bloodshot eyes. We see veins in his eyes as he's going mm. towards Ataru. But then it just turns out, he like, he swims past Ataru, and he gets out, and he washes out of the eyes. He just had, like, chlorine in his eyes. He, yeah, he just had chlorine in his eyes. Uh, which is just a great sight gag of Katatsuneko just like completely ignoring or being completely unaware of the situation <laughs> and just getting out and doing what he does. Ataru sees a girl whose swimsuit has come off. He tries to get the bikini. Of course he does. Uh, however, Katatsuneko is practicing swimming. It lands on his head. Ataru chases after him. He notices, throws it away. Lum snatches it. And runs off with it, this poor girl without a bikini. Yeah, like, we never check bikini in with top. this girl again. Like, No, we don't. She she's just naked in the back? pool. Like, yeah, like, seriously. Like, what she's, what is- does she do here? <laughs> this is so mean. <laughs> it is. Uh, Ataru chases after Lum. He finally counts down to zero. And, of course, it self-destructs, leaving <laughs> Ataru basically face-up, half-drowning. With a little balloon that comes out of the wreckage that says, Congrats, you completed 200 meters swim. Like a burn mark in his stomach from the explosion. Like, <laughs> self-destructing. <laughs> so sadistic of him. What harsh training. You see Ten, like, kind of shirking away there. Like, he's so glad yeah. that it was not him. Ten's only, like, about a centimetre tall in this panel, but his expression just says it all. Like, yeah. this is why I don't want Lum teaching me how to swim. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I tweeted a lot of this chapter out and basically just said, yeah, this is how my dad taught me how to swim <laughs> oh, as well. No. The, the Australian way of teaching kids how to swim is, uh, or at least back in the 1980s, was basically, we're going to put you into the water, and when I say put, I mean toss, and you're going to have to figure this out real quick. <laughs> Literal single swim. <laughs> uh, swimming is like a super important activity in Australia. Mm. It's very, uh, like, pretty much it's part of the school curriculum and most people learn it really young. Like, my daughter started learning when she was two. I think she's been swimming for, like, two years. Uh, wow. And results may vary. Let's put it like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of swimming lessons when I was a kid, but I don't know if it was necessarily, like, a mandatory thing i mean obviously in gym class you would have like a period of every year where you would be doing like a lot of swimming but yeah that's interesting in uh beach culture is very popular in australia because you know most of the uh, most people live around the coastline right uh like i don't actually live near the coastline um i'm about a three hour drive away from it 
but I still love the beach. And uh, when I was in university, I used to go like bodyboarding and surfing and stuff like that, which was really cool. Uh, but it's something that is just kind of ingrained into our culture. And it's the way that they teach swimming in this book just really super reminded me of how it was done back in the back when I was a kid, which would have been when this was written. <laughs> okay, next we've got chapter eight, Sakura's sorrowful childhood. Yeah, we basically have ended our speak of summer chapters. Now we're moving back to the fall, moving back to things going on at the school, and this chapter just starts off kind of little of what Sakura's like kind of regular routine is every day at the school, really. Like, I mean, first it starts off with, like, her having a big breakfast, like a huge pot of food she's eating, and Chirius, like, snuck in, like, a pill in there, an inner child pill that is supposed to stimulate her childlike spirit. And nothing hums of it at first, so she just decides to go to school, and of course all the students come in first thing in the morning saying they don't feel well when they're clearly lying. And so she pushes him out of the way. Ataro pours things behind, but then she kicks him out. And then, to top it all off, if we weren't just a student, it's also the principal and Tatsuneko who are, like, lying <laughs> in a bed and saying that they don't feel very well. But then she throws them out. And they just kind of walk around saying, oh, some women are so scary. But that, all this ruckus is making Sakura actually feel unwell. And Cherry's, like, popping out of the locker and say, liar. And she throws him out the window. And so, but she crawls into bed, thinking the child pill is actually upsetting her. She flashes back to her childhood, where she was a very sickly child, and Cherry forbade her to go out and play with the children, because she would make herself more ill. When really she was getting more ill looking at his face. Her face, his face would make it crazy. <laughs> but she was lamenting as a kid, like hearing everyone play, that, you know, she couldn't go out and join them. And so Sakura kind of stirs awake to find kind of her childlike spirit having manifested beside her, asking to play. She doesn't quite realize it's her child self at first, but it slowly recognizes it. And of course, at that moment, all the students come in, all our regular gang folks come in, and I mistake it for her child. But then they also slowly come to understand that it's Sakura's inner child. And she asks to play in self-defense forces. And the humans are the monsters. And she is the humans. And so basically the game is she summons a bunch of these spirits to chase after Ataru, Mendo, and Shinobu. While she's riding on the spirits. And well, I guess is on her side in this game. And so they're chasing them throughout the halls, and basically, they Sakura, meanwhile, has gone after Cherry to drag him back so he can fix this mess. And, like, when upon seeing Cherry, because he's bald, and earlier, she, when she played her child, saw the principal, because he was bald, he called him an octopus, and now seeing Cherry, she calls him an octopus, and she sicks all the spirits on her. But Sakura uses her spiritual powers to get them to disperse. And there's a great gag of, like, inner Sakura throws a toad, and then adult Sakura throws a python, and the python devours the toad. <laughs> It's a pretty great gag, and so... It's a great visual gag, though. Yeah, Sakura's mad at herself and spanks her. Even though everyone was like, whoa, that's kind of harsh. But, mm. yeah, like, Inner Sakura is just kind of cheering up and, like, 
kind of explain, you know, her regrets of not being able to play much when she was a kid, she was always sick, and just really wanting to let loose, and that kind of kind of touches adult soccer's heart, because that is an expression of, like, her wants and desires, and so, you know, adult soccer gives herself the permission, gives her child the permission to just let loose and go play, and she'll take the responsibility, and so Cinder Sakura does do that. She lets out her spirits, and they destroy the school. And... <laughs> Fully destroy the school. Not even just, like, slightly break it. Yeah, and Sakura deflects responsibility to Cherry. Uh, well, the principal is just kind of staring silent. And then uh, Ataru and Kosuke are just celebrating the classes over for the day to just go destroy. <laughs> I, I just love... Ataru and, and Kosuke at the end, they're just like high-fiving each other, going, yeah, class is over. <laughs> There's also a great gag at the end where um, where Sakura notices what problems her younger self has said and deflects it to Cherry saying, he will take full responsibility, yeah. <laughs> which is such a childhood thing to do. Yeah. Like, that's such a, don't blame me, I didn't do it, let's blame someone else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite panels here is just uh, when all the spirits are about to attack the principal, and Lum says, I advise running away. And the principal just says, I'm not an octopus. <laughs> it's, I don't know. That just one really tickles me, because Lum is, like, riding on top of the spirits. Yeah, and she's trying to give him advice, like, hey, you should get out of here. And he's just being stubborn yeah. and saying, hey, I'm not an octopus. They can't be after me. And, of course, they trample over him. Yeah. You you see a lot of animals and spirits in this volume, and it, it really does kind of seem to be something that Takahashi really needed to scratch that itch. Yeah. Like, he really just wanted to to do some, like, draw animals yeah. or spirits or just something that wasn't straight humans for, you know, 12 pages every week. I think Takahashi really just loves drawing goofy animals. I mean... Lest we forget, like, the end of the last book we covered <laughs> featured a bunch of the characters fighting against a gang of animals. So, like, yeah. she's just really in a mood to draw animals, it seems, at this point. She really, the series really has been for almost a year now, yeah. I think, <laughs> from what we've been reading. So we're up to chapter nine, Recovering That Which Was Lost. So this is um, the first part. Hmm. The cover art for the the chapter is also pretty well known. It is of Lum, Benten, and Oyuki. And this has also been used on a lot of merch, uh, colorized. And it's a it's a great little sort of... It's a, just a great form of art with all three of them. And Lum is kind of poking Benten's stomach. Yeah. And the context here is that she's missing her chain, but... Yeah. If you don't have context, it just looks kind of like she's perving on Benten, which yeah. is, I think, why this has become so popular outside of this chapter. It does give off uh, some serious gal pal, very queer energy vibes. Hmm. And, uh, and Benten's actually just sitting there looking very proud of herself. <laughs> so we start with, uh, with Lum in her UFO, asking about Benten. And Oyuki can't find her either. Uh, she comes back to Ataru's home. And of course, Ben 10 is just sitting there with Katatsuneko in a bath towel. I think this might be the first time you see Ben 10 with her hair down as well. No, yeah. you, you know, that you see that it, her hair is actually quite long. Yeah, it is. And it goes down past her shoulders. 
Yeah, she looks pretty cute with her hair done, but she does resemble maybe Sakura a little bit. So, I mean, the haircut is shorter, bit, yeah. so I think if you still put them beside her, you would have used it. But, yeah, it's a cool look. I do like um, how you see Benten actually put her uniform on. Or, you know, uniform, basically her clothes, and how they kind of, the sound effects are kind of chuk 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 chuk, like she kind of clicks everything into yeah. place. Snaps meaning that place. it's it's all very metallic and metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it turns out she has been missing her chain uh, after she found someone who she thought was dead in the forest of pink mushrooms on another planet. And then she was knocked out, and when she came to, it turns out her chain was gone, and this chain is very, very important to her. And it turns out Oyuki has received a video message, which I love is literally a VHS tape. Uh, I I don't know. That just really tickled me. Like, of course it would be, because, you know, back at the the time, this was like new technology. This was having stuff like this. Of course it would be a tape. This will never go out of style. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, it turns out that the the video message is from Ginger, Sugar, and Pepper, who are basically a trio of bad girls at uh, Planetary. They say high school, but it's actually middle school. Yeah, that's the that's the context that's kind of missing here. Is like you know, Lum or Yuki Benton were a gang in middle school, and these girls are now going to that same middle school. But they can't earn a reputation of badasses because of the reputation that Lum's generation left behind. It's like being the uber badasses. So that's why they want to defeat them so that they can claim that they are the truly baddest bad girl gang that's ever been. So these guys pop up numerous times from here on out. Yeah, they're recurring characters and I love these stories. (laughs) These stories are really, really fun. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's literally just, their whole motivation is that they want to be known as the baddest of the bad. And the funny thing is that Ben 10, Lum, and Oyuki, they never wanted that. They yeah. just were genuinely bad people. Yeah, they were just bratty like, kids. <laughs> they were trying to be a gang, like these guys. So, of course, Oyuki says, how rude, I'm not a bad girl. And Lum says, me neither. This is a terrible misunderstanding. And then, and then we see have a flashbacks flashback. <laughs> when, like, Benton to, was getting to a like, fight and Lum was like, hey, I want to join in. And then Benton stole someone's lunch and Yuki was, like, eating it with her. Like, they they were co-conspirators. They were culpable, even oh, if they weren't the instigators. No, they're all bad people. Yeah. And I, I, just, I just love how, like, throughout all of these stories, or Yuki always thinks of herself as the innocent party and all this. Yeah. She's always wanted um, to distance kind of herself and remove herself from blame. Mm. Like we saw that with the Intergalactic Teacher Sao 2 chapter in the mm. previous volume 2, where she was like, oh, she was along for the ride in their schemes to get rid of Sao 2, but because she like didn't like actively like uh, participate by like putting her holding up the cannon or whatever like she said oh i wasn't involved even though she was there he was watching and she was goading them on (laughs) that's such a i don't know i i I know new people like this when i was like in our equivalent of middle school (laughs) which was just high school like high school in australia in fact i was some of these people sometimes let's not do that i was i was not always a good kid 
Um, but you know, I grew up in Australia. None of the kids were good. No, no. Um, it turns out that the um, the bad girl gang have Benten's chain, and they're basically holding it hostage so they can go and fight Oyuki, Benten, and Lum. Benten is completely outraged by this and smashes the television <laughs> and the VCR, uh, and then goes to fight them and takes off. The girls kind of convene and think, you know what, uh, this might not have been such a great idea because they're all much bigger and much more powerful than we are, and they decide that this might actually be a really bad idea. And a lot and of them regaling, like, the reputation of Lum's group had, like how Benton, like, single-handedly beat up an entire gang of bad boys, and that wherever Lum walks, it's basically scorched earth because of electricity and not a single blade <laughs> of grass grows back. And then a guy that tried to hit on a Yuki has been like frozen in ice, stranded on Neptune. <laughs> oh my god, they are hardcore. They are. And, you know, you just get the feeling from, like, their reputation that none of them really meant to do, like, meant to go strive for this reputation. It's just the kind of awful people they are. Yeah. Uh, and and then so they, they call on their uh, giant computer, Soruto, Soruto one. 1, uh, which is a giant monkey holding a frying pan. Yeah, wearing a chef's hat. There's a, a, a few jokes, yeah, about this a bit later on. Yeah, we get a how to draw at the beginning of uh, chapter, <laughs> the third chapter of this arc. <laughs> so they ask what the best circumstances are for them to win. And uh, Benten is chasing after them with uh, Lum and Oyuki behind them. And <laughs> this fantastic gag that is so Oyuki. <laughs> tries to give Ben 10 an invoice uh, for the cost of destroyed video player and projector. Yeah, it's great, because the setup so is <laughs> like, Oyuki saying, oh, this is my problem too, and Ben 10 saying, oh man, you're a good friend. I thought you were cold, but you actually formed the core, but then what she really cares about is making Ben 10 pay your back for the equipment she destroyed. She doesn't actually care about Ben 10 getting her drawback, her, her, her uh, chain back. Also, Ben 10 had... No idea where they were. She just, like, flew off and then realized yeah. that Lum had the address for the battle. Yeah. Um, so they both meet up on a planet in space on Earth, and it's in a cafe. Yeah. There's a great build-up to this where it looks like they're on a battleground or something like that, where it's three versus three, the wind is blowing behind them. <laughs> But they're just all sitting down at a cafe having something to drink. And the wind is coming from the open doors of the cafe. <laughs> and yeah, this is where we find out that Ert is in space vector Aha. So, very low opinion yeah. of Ert from whoever defines <laughs> what the space sectors are. Uh, and it's at 4pm as well, which is also for being a, a reoccurring number. Oh yeah, time, reoccurring which is, which is unlucky, unlucky number. Yeah. <laughs> space vector Aha. Uh, now we're getting uh, into the second uh, chapter of this arc, recovering that which was lost. I will say one thing about this previous chapter before we move on. Ataru is not in this chapter at all. He's not in this arc at all, except in a fantasy sequence. He physically does not appear exactly. in the story, which is so interesting. This is very rare for the series where there's a chapter with like out any Ataru physically appearing. 
this is really just focused on Lum and her friends. And I, when I, I remember when I first read that, I, I was super jazzed about that. I liked seeing this story about just Lum and her friends getting into the shenanigans like this. And I enjoy, there are more chapters like this in the future. So I, I really appreciate that. And again, I, I could read a whole prequel one of the years out there. It's just Lum, Benton, Ayuki, Ron, just hanging out causing mischief. I do love this about, like, Takahashi seems to have almost stumbled into a way to tell more stories about Lum, mm-hmm. and not just Lum being a side character or just being in love with Ataru. Yeah. You know, like, going back and exploring the the, fa- the fact that, you know, no matter what your opinion about Lum is, she's not a very good person. No. <laughs> yeah, I like seeing more shades of the characters, and again, I also like these stories where Lum is interacting with her friends, because it does put Lum into a more straight man position, because her friends are so much more eccentric when com- compared, mm. she's compared to them. Uh, like, we'll see, like, in the conclusion of this arc, like, yeah, she is definitely playing, like, the straight man to, like, Benton's kind of obliviousness as we see. But, yeah. So, as we get into the second of this arc, recovering that which is lost, fierce three-on-three battle, we do get a fight between these ex-high school girl gangers and then these middle school girl gangers. So, for the moment, as this chapter starts, like, the middle school bad girl gang. They're just, like, <laughs> eating up a bunch of stuff to get bay, like, they're drinking some drinks. And so Benton's, like, asking them where her chain is, and she's, and the bad girls are ignoring her. And so... They're just eating. Yeah, they're just eating, and, like, when they're trying to act all cool, like, when they're goading on Benton for the fight, but they have, like, a bunch of sherbet drink on their faces, so they're trying to act all badass when they... This is funny. But yeah. They are so middle school. They are just so middle school here. Yeah, I think this is the definition of middle school syndrome. <laughs> but yeah, like they run out of the cafe, whip it and change, like goading them to follow them. And of course, they don't pay their bill. So, <laughs> again, even as adults, they're still not the best people, women and friends. But yeah, like, obviously, they're chasing after and trying to attack the bad girl gang. And so they split up to kind of trick them with their own unique skills. So Sugar has the power to turn invisible, so she tries to use that to confuse the group for a moment until they figure out. It's not that she has like psychokinesis and can make the chain move on her own. She's just invisible. So they knock her out because they figure out where she is (laughs) because obviously she's just whirling the chain. She's at the end of the chain. Yeah, Yeah. but then she throws it to Ginger and Ginger wears a change and passes it to Pepper, passes it back, but it seemingly hits Ginger right in the neck and conks her out and seemingly kills her by snapping her neck, which is a super dark joke, but... Yeah. (laughs) But this supposedly serious moment is soon undercut by the chain being thrown yet again from Pepper to Sugar, and then Ginger awakes and reveals that, oh, her secret attack skill is playing dead, which is how she was able to fool Benton in the previous chapter. Like, she's just Mm. able to play dead. So they continue to try and chase after Chain, and then Sugar throws it back to Pepper, who runs off after it, and Lum tries to follow and meanwhile, like, Sugar is holding Benton back and, like, kind of being upset that she thinks that she's getting because her boobs are weird on her. <laughs> Whatever. Like, again, very childish. 
But yeah, Lom is trying yeah. to chase after Pepper, but Pepper's secret ability is that she can shed her skin like a snake, and so she's able to elude Lom by doing this multiple times. Leaves <laughs> like a bunch of her skins lying on the road, which is kind of a gross <laughs> sight. Eventually, Lom yeah, wises up and disgusting. just yeah shocks Pepper, but. Because she shocks Pepper using the chain as a conductor, the chain breaks. And so Lum kind of gets nervous that, oh shoot, I broke Bethan's chain that means a lot to her. Ayuki, at this point, like, Ayuki been to meet up with Lum and Lum is kind of trying to shake off uh, the chain and, like, uh, like kind of shove it to the side and kind of downplay it, and then Ayuki's like, why are we even doing this? Like, the fight's kind of empty. And Benton's like, you know, I have to get my chain back. And so then Ayuki is kind of whispering to love, oh, maybe it's special to her because it belonged to a sweetheart of hers, and they have a fantasy sequence imagining like, the chain keepsake of an ex-lover of Benton's who, like, later died because she hit her with the chain. So it's a memento <laughs> of a deceased love that she caused. And, like, of course, Benton denies that she overhears them talking about this and says it's a much deeper reason why I need it back. But at that moment, of course, sort of toe number one <laughs> kind of arrives and is, like, staring them down this giant, goofy-looking spaceship that's drawn so dramatically with dramatic skating, which I love. <laughs> But yeah, like that's how this chapter ends. This is, I do love how they all have their special abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, Like they've all got these, like unlike Lum and Oyuki, who are, you know, basically lightning and can create ice, their powers are just so horribly mundane in comparison. I mean, they're pretty useful. I actually think Pepper and uh, Sugar's powers are actually extremely useful. They're just not the best at using them. I do feel bad for Ginger. When you compare them to yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> when you compare them to Lum and Oyuki's, though, they're just yeah. they're just not quite up to snuff. I mean, Benton doesn't have powers. She's just a really good fighter. But yeah, yeah. I think Benten's like fighting skill is her special ability. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. I mean, Oyuki and Lum with their powers are very OP. So. Very true. So now we're on to chapter 11, Recovering That Which Was Lost Conclusion. Yeah. This is great because the uh, the front page actually has how to draw uh, Soruto number one in easy steps. Yeah. And it's just it's just how to draw that stupid giant supercomputer monkey yeah, shape it's thing. it's very easy. Just <laughs> ten steps to it. Very simple shapes. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was like uh, Takahashi's idea or if it was one of her editor's ideas or something like that. But it's a very cute inclusion to have here. Mm. Uh, I, one thing I will kind of say about this chapter is that I'm a little disappointed that it takes place on Earth. Like I get that that's you know where it, there's a bit more comedy and everything like that. But I always love it when we're in space and we're in some kind of foreign environment. Yeah like Oniboshi or something like that, because it's just it there's just so much more fantastic art and ideas there. Yeah. Um but you know, where on earth that's okay. That's where we live. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There aren't a ton of stories when I think about it that do take place off Earth. Like obviously we had the deranged marriage arc, obviously we have the final arc in the series, and there are going to be some chapters where we check in on characters off world, but yeah, a lot of yeah, the stories really do take place on our Earth. Like, even most of these 
chapters with the bad girl gang, they do come to Earth to cause mischief. I think there's only one, maybe, where they don't go to Earth. They're, like, at some sort of class reunion that they crash. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that one pretty soon, I think. No, that one is, like, one of the last ones that happens. Oh, is it? Yeah, that's, oh, like, near okay. the end of the series. I think the next one after this will get Ataru involved. Okay, uh, maybe that's the one I'm thinking of, but that is, I'm pretty sure that one's on Earth. Mm-hmm. So, here we've got uh, the... <laughs> Saruto number one is flying down. Someone actually in the crowd says it looks like a flying doodle. <laughs> so, so the the way that the, the Takahashi made it look more serious is by shading. Mm. So it's it's shading shaded it and made it look a bit more om- ominous. However, after it lands, it actually has bread roll written on its feet. <laughs> so they ask for instructions. The um, the bad girl gang asks for instructions on how to win. The giant computer just kind of stays there. <laughs> just doesn't look like it's doing anything. Energy depleted. Lum, Ben Ten, and Oyuki are in a hole trying to listen in to what's going on. Yeah. Lum has a kind of a fantasy here about admitting to Ben Ten that she broke her chain and fantasizes that uh, basically Ben Ten says, Oh, our friendship has ended. In exchange, I'll be taking your treasure, which is a Taru, who says, I accept my fate and yeah. goes off with Ben Ten. As he would, he would have willingly said that. Oh, he would he would so do that. Uh, so they they fill the the bad girl gang fill the uh, Saruto. Saruto number one supercomputer. Sorry, Saruto <laughs> uh, with salad oil. So basically, cooking <laughs> oil into the uh, the bread roll drum, uh, and then he just spits out an enormous amount of chains. Yeah, all identical to Ben 10's. Right on top of them, too. Like, they crushed yeah. them. So they think they've won, laughing that you're never going to figure out which one is which. Uh, they try to split up, but it turns out the chains are super heavy and they can't actually get away. <laughs> um, so Ben 10 actually tells Lum to basically electrocute everything, which Lum does happily, because, you know, her chain is obviously going to be stronger than the rest of them. And there's a great uh, Ultraman reference here where uh, Lum does her super... Yeah, her uh, like Super electric yeah. attack, yeah. Which Takahashi loves to bring that up every every time it's like a kind of a special oh, yeah. super widespread electrical attack. She makes a lot of Ultraman references. I mean, there's like an even more explicit one later in this volume. Yeah, there is. Um, so she basically... I mean, she basically bundles them. up... And then Oyuki, like, freezes them. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. She freezes them. Ben 10 kind of gathers them up and just throws them against the ground and shatters the remainder of the chains, finding her actual chain amongst all of the burnt wreckage and and, um, and split ones. Uh, Lum is super happy because she thought she destroyed her yeah. in the last chapter. It was just an imitation, it seems. So she lucked out. Yeah. So uh, Ben 10 is reunited. With her chain and the bad girl gang are utterly defeated. Yeah, they were playing defeated until they left too. Yeah, which is what we thought, because of course they can't take it anymore. They run away, and the the gang call them cowards and old cows. So they all go back to Ben Ten's place, where it turns out her chain is actually her front door key. Yeah, and she so left her spare inside the house. Yeah. 
And after all that, she finally gets inside, which is why she was so desperate to get it back. It wasn't a memento from a lover or anything like that. She just couldn't get back inside her house. But it turned out she left her back door Yeah, she comes inside the house to find the Spice Girl gang waiting for them. They're all there. Yeah, they're all there and they're chowing down. And drinking a tea. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love is just 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 such a great Ben Ten moment of <laughs> of like these girls don't give up. They don't give up for a while, and they try and take the um. They try they to try use a fake chain. They, yeah, the same. Yeah. Oh, the chain you have is a fake. So come and after us for if you want the real one. And they're just ignoring them at the end of the chapter, just drinking tea themselves, yeah. where is trying to kind of pester. Deeds Benton about the fact that her patch you have the back door open while Benton's trying to kind of play it off. Yeah. Oh, tea's delicious. Uh, this is very much a Lum being the straight man here. Yeah. Kind of pointing out because often she's she's just kind of swept up in all of the, the madness that's happening around her. And it is kind of interesting to see Benton's house as well, mm. because that is certainly not on Earth. Yeah. Just seems to be out on a on a planet somewhere. Yeah, it seems to be uh, also a really spaceship kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, kind, kind of, of like, like Ross. Like spaceship serves as her only Benton. Spaceship serves as hers. So Benton is meant to be one of the the seven lucky gods. Yeah, I really wish we'd seen more of that gang. Yeah, but we, we don't really seem to catch up with them much as the as the story progresses. It's just really only about Benton. So I really enjoyed this arc. I, I loved the fact that it did kind of get away from the rest of the cast for a little bit and did really focus on on Lum's past and her relationship with the uh, with her friends as well, which is, you know, Lum really does love to fight. Mm-hmm. And I really love Oyuki, how Oyuki will always join them, but really won't intercede unless she absolutely has to. Yeah. Or possibly if you pay her. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love chapters that focus on Lum getting to mischief with her friends. And I also love the Spice Girl game, the Bat Girls. Like, they're fun characters. Because they try to act so cool, but they are so childish. They aren't as cool as they think, so they're almost, like, fun. And, yeah, like, the, this is a really fun story. Uh, this entire uh, first half of the volume that we've covered so far has so many really fun stories. And that's true of the second half, too. But, yeah. Like, I am. Like, I think we're in a really great place with the series right now. Like, it's really hitting it out of the park with every chapter, it feels like. Now, as we have reached the end of, like, this half volume here, we do get a data file account column. This data file, data file 19, is about the flourishing economy and street earnings of Tomobiki, like basically talking about the shopping district and why, even though in real life, uh, because of economic downturn, you know, a lot of shopping districts have been shuttered or closed, you know, the Tomobiki shopping district, uh, you know, it's a tough survivor. It's still traveling, even in this challenging time. And basically, the justification that this data file gives is that, you know, there aren't a bunch of big supermarkets in the town. Like, this is a town that seems to really value kind of like these individual shops, these kind of mom-and-pop shops. They have a strong merchant association to keep, like, big mega shops coming in. It does talk about Mm. the tragedy of, like, that father-daughter coffee shop that 
kind of closed down. But the reason why that happened wasn't because they weren't getting customers so much as like their own unfortunate. They were getting the wrong type of customers. Yeah, <laughs> and they kind of shot themselves in the foot when they were trying to scare them away by showing, of course, those yeah. like cockroaches on people who were not the students, so they ruined their own reputation there. But, like, they also uh, collaborate. The shopping district patrons, they all collaborate with each other to, you know, help draw in customers. Like, they throw up these festivals. Uh, they do a lot of collaborations. You know? So, that's a good detail. Like, they have a lot of camaraderie as fellow merchants. They also note that they're just a lot of notable uh, institutional customers, like obviously the high school students are pointed out as like a big strong customer base, especially for the restaurants and so the Merchant Association definitely benefits from their business and also it, it points out that the shopping district just offers a lot of stuff really cheaply, especially food, so like even the aliens in the series we see buy food from the Dobie shopping district like Rod buys like Tayaki there, Kurama's crows buy rice there. So, you know, they offer some very affordable food for people to buy. Yeah, this is very much an idealized version of what uh, kind of 60s and 70s uh, Japanese shopping districts were like. And then a lot of it changed during the 80s in the economic upturn because there were massive... Um, there were massive shopping centers and massive supermarkets that were moving into the area and driving others out of business. So this is more of an idealized sort of um, world that kind of existed back before then. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting that have been to a lot of those areas um, where they used to be exactly like that. And then there was kind of like um, supermarkets moved in and a whole bunch of shops closed down. But then uh, they turned into more specialty shops to try and gain like a reputation through magazines and television and stuff. So there's been kind of an interesting upturn. But about this time, a lot of those shops, which were, were like, they were basically like just selling fruit and veg sort of things or seafood. Um, they discovered that it was a lot more profitable if they just bought a whole bunch of Space Invader and Pac-Man machines and filled it, filled their shops just full of those arcades so people can just wander in and play those rather than the rather than just like supplying food and and drink to the customers and apparently that happened to quite a lot of districts back in the late 70s and early 80s which i just kind of find fascinating wow so there is here we have the count column the number of times ataru goes to a vacation destination very which is 22 one. times yeah yeah very pertinent which is uh, the beach 16 times, the pool three times, the mountain twice, and the highlands once. Yeah. Number of times Cherry just happens to be there, eight times. Number of times Sakura just happens to be there, seven times. And four times with a date on Tsubame. Tsubame, You know, yeah. I thought that happened more. It's, that's actually surprising. It was only four times in the series that this happens. Yeah. It feels like it was it more feel, Yeah, it guy. feels like it is every time. Yeah. A uh, number of times Ataru encounters a spook or ghost, 11 times. Yeah. So basically half the time he goes on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> they can't escape the supernatural shenanigans. So yeah, it's always neat to kind of point out kind of the tropes that Yurisiyatsu plays with and kind of indulges in, especially because 
as we've pointed out, like, it does these seasonal types of chapters. Like, there is a tradition of doing these summer beach chapters, these beach arcs, so it's kind of nice to kind of mm. look at those and see what are some of the common things that happen in all these similar storylines. And that's where we'll curtail our discussion for now. Like I said, originally we'd gone on to discuss the first two chapters of the next half of this volume in this recording session, but I think closing us off here right at the end of the first half of the omnibus, right at the end of what was originally volume 19, makes for a cleaner split. And so tune in next time for a discussion of the second half of the Tempt Omnibus, featuring a lot of stories about a lot of love troubles. And until then, you can find AC on Twitter at ProcTally and check out his gaming podcast Game Life Balance Australia on your podcatcher of choice. And you can find me on Twitter at LamarMiyasha and find me by the name pretty much wherever else I am. Amulets, Letterbox, Camerition, Revelation, etc. Murders of Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. If you like the art I make, you can find my illustrations and animations on my Instagram at ZedArtWorks. You can also check out my other podcast, Manga Mavericks, where we discuss manga as both a medium and as an industry on MangaMavericks.com, aka the former AllAskRamer.com, where you can also find my manga reviews, as well as press releases and interviews. You can follow Manga Mavericks on Twitter at Mavericks, on YouTube at YouTube.com/slash/MangaMavericks, and on every podcatcher you can think of, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much any podcast platform you can think of we're on, and the same is true of Lum Squad. You can find us on Twitter at Lum underscore Squad. You can find our YouTube channel if you search for it in the search bar. And we're on most podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. If you are looking for us, you should probably find us on whatever podcatcher you're using. And if you want to share your thoughts on your Oxford with us, if you want to send us questions, comments, and feedback, you can send those to our email at lumsquadpod at gmail.com and we'd be delighted to read your inquiries a lot on the show. And similarly, if you would like to leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher choice, that also helps us out. It helps us get seen more in the algorithms. It helps us get some good engagement to reach more hearts and minds of other fellow stormtroopers fellow apostles of Lum, as it were, and I think it's all the worth it to spread the love of love. But if you also want to help us support the show, help us keep producing podcasts at a regular rate, you can support us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where we have a variety of tier options you can pledge at and receive some exclusive perks as reward. These include early access to select pods that are $2 tier, which, as previously mentioned, includes the second half of our Volume 10 discussion, and it will also have up, at the time of you listening to this, our podcast covering the first movie, Only You, if you want to get a little bit of a head sneak peek on that on our Patreon. And at our $5 tier, we have a monthly bonus podcast exclusive to patrons every month. And these include a variety of different types of podcasts, including Walking Bob Volume Readsters, a series like Saint and Joseph's Miller Adventure, exclusive manga and movie episodes on films like Alita Battle Angel and General Super Broly, 
end of the year retrospectives on the past year's worth of chapters in Shonen Jump, and various other one-off topics you can only listen to and are only available on our Patreon. And in taking over ownership of all that Shonen.com recently and rebranding it under the Mountain Rider's name, we've also inherited the cost of running the website, so your support is greatly appreciated and it really helps us keep up the site and the podcast and helps us keep producing a lot of cool stuff for you guys to check out and read and listen to. And we're really grateful for your guys' support and hope you'll stick with us as we've got even more exciting things on the docket for the future. But for now, we're going to sign off this episode of Live Squad with a matane racha and a sayonara. Bye-bye!